Welcome to The Shalene Show. Shalene is a New York Times bestselling author, celebrity fitness trainer, and obsessed with helping you live your dream life. She's back. Hey, I'm so happy you're here. Thanks so much for joining me on this part two edition all about sleep with renowned sleep expert, the sleep doctor, Dr. Michael Bruce. Now, if you missed part one, you don't want to go much further. You've got to go back and listen to it. It's so cool, mainly because we discuss in that episode what your sleep chronotype is, and that's going to be very useful to you before listening to this edition, part two. Your sleep chronotype is something that really taps into your your circadian rhythm, the way that you're most productive, how you can burn the most calories, what time of day you should take a run, eat a cheeseburger, or have sex. It's pretty interesting. Definitely go back and listen to that episode. But today, back by popular demand, is Dr. Michael Bruce. And in this episode, we dig even deeper into what you can do to affect your weight, your hormones, your productivity, And little did you know, you are a co-producer of this show. So what I did was took all of the most common questions that I received from you, the listener, and just did rapid fire questions to Dr. Bruce. He dispels so many sleep myths in this episode. It's one you're going to want to pass along to your friends. In fact, if you don't know how to do that, can I tell you how to do it right now? Okay. Most apps that you're listening to the show on, if you look while you're listening to the show, if you look at your phone, go ahead, go ahead. Look in the very bottom right-hand corner of your screen. There are probably three little dots. Now, if you tap on those three little dots, a little menu pops up with some options. One of the options is send or share the podcast. Click that button and text it to your friend who could use some beauty rest or better sex or help in the area of improving their memory, or pretty much anything related to sleep. Okay, let's face it, that's almost everyone in your contact list. So pick your three besties, send them this episode, and don't forget to leave your reviews for me on iTunes. I use your feedback to decide what shows you'd like more of, what topics you'd like me to dig a little deeper into, and you dictate the direction of the show. So thank you in advance for your feedback. Off to the show. Ladies and gentlemen, back by popular demand, Dr. <laughs> Bruce here. Les, if you missed our previous episode, go back and listen to that because especially if there are gentlemen listening and uh, the ladies who have shared with me that, you know, part of your relationship, that intimacy piece has been missing because you're just so freaking exhausted when you hit the sheets. We've got some solutions for you in that episode, as well as information about how you can correct some of those hormone imbalances, your cognitive abilities, and so much more as it relates to sleep. But I had to have Dr. Bruce to the show again. Dr. Bruce, thank you so much for your returning to The Shalene Show. Thanks for having me. We have so much more that I want to cover, and I have so many questions from my audience. I hope that it's okay that we go right to fire away. Awesome. Okay. Because one of the most common questions that I'm getting from my audience is they want to know, listen, I'm not a morning person, but mm-hmm. I keep hearing from, you know, right. every study and every success expert that I need to wake up early. I need to exercise early and I need to get my day started early, but that I'm not a morning person. How do I do this? 
So first of all, I disagree with those theories. And I've been on many of their podcasts and movies and talked with them. And the <laughs> thing that, that they seem to have not taken into account was the idea of somebody's chronotype. Mm. And so a chronotype is your genetically predetermined time when your body wants to sleep. Um, now, that can change over the course of your lifetime. But generally speaking, it's fairly set between the ages of 20 and about 50 and a lot of people just aren't morning people. I'm here to tell you, I am not a morning person. It's not my favorite time of day. While I do get up around 6.30 to help get my kids ready for school and take them on to the bus and things like that, uh, it's not like you know we're having super stimulating conversations. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, definitely use a couple of techniques to help me be a better morning person. And I'm happy to share those with your audience if you'd like. Well, I think we can get to those. But my biggest question there is, should we be forcing ourselves to be a morning person or is it your suggestion then that perhaps we honor our own chronotype? So I would say if I had my druthers, mm -hmm. we would honor our chronotype first because wow. you just don't mess with mother nature, right? This, these are genetically predetermined situations. It's all based on something called your PER3 gene and the length of that gene determines your overall sleep drive and when your body wants to sleep. And so don't buck mother nature. That's the person who, you know, is really kind of setting things up for the rest of your world. I would say continue on if you can, if you have a flexible enough schedule. But for those of you that don't have a flexible schedule where you have no choice. You might be a night person, but you have to get up at 530. Mm -hmm. There are a few things that you can do to help kind of tweak that a little bit and get your morning started. Oh, I love that. So we're going to get to those tips, but let's talk about this um, PRE3 gene. Yep. And if there's like one word I could use to sum up the last year I've had of speaking to experts and trying to figure out my own machine is heterogeneity. Like, each one of us so different, right? And right. to understand, for me anyways, for the first time this year that there isn't one set answer for everyone because we all have different genes. And so right. trying to force us all to have the same habits, eat the same diet, and expect the same results is ludicrous. It's just not a great idea. I mean, we just, we don't all fit into these nice you know, one size fits all lifestyles. I mean, you know, it would be great if we did, but we don't. And I think trying to force ourselves in that direction is not going to be a good idea. Mm. But what is an example of something like, let's say that you, you are staying up till 2, 3 a.m. And then, mm -hmm. um, you know, your husband or your wife is getting the kids ready in the morning and so that you can sleep in and um, you're not going to bed with your partner or you are an insomniac. Like in what instances is it that you suggest that people do try to hack their chronotype a little bit? Well, I think there are, there are some times where it can make sense. The first thing I ask people to do is to educate those, mm -hmm. their loved ones about their own chronotype and have them, their loved ones, learn about what their own chronotype is as well. Amen. I mean, it's kind of amazing because what happens is, is one person takes the quiz, they buy the book, and then they have everybody in their family take the quiz. And then they all start reading the book. Because I've got a section in there on when to talk to your kids. Guilty. Got Guilty as charged. I did exactly yeah. that. And Brett, Brett is like a true, my husband is like a true lion. But mm -hmm. I think it helped him to, you know, for us both to kind of understand, especially with partners where one wants to stay up late and one wants to go to bed early. It's not that there's a disconnect from each other, but it's a natural propensity. It's a, 
genetic propensity, if if I'm understanding you correctly. That is correct. That is correct. And so education is the key first. And sometimes I'm having people educate their employers and their coworkers. And you would be surprised. I actually now have been having companies come to me and say, will you chronotype my company? Wow. So that way we can plan meetings based on chronotypes, because what they're finding is when the meetings are at the right time for the right type of individual, they actually hear what the assignments are, understand what Mm -hmm. the work needs to be and they do it better faster and cheaper yeah that's worth its weight in gold it's unbelievable wow so in those instances let's say i'm a a wolf and my husband is a lion you know how how can i still be as productive and as efficient as i want to be and feel good but try to get closer to my partner's schedule so there's a couple of ways to do it first of all it depends upon what you are and what they are so if you i Sounds like you're both lions. Yeah. Uh, I'm just saying hypothetically for the audience. Uh, okay. For the audience. So, it, and it's kind of funny, by the way, but a lot of couples find themselves with the same chronotype. Um, just as an aside, mm-hmm. uh, when I met my wife, you know, I would say, hey, what time do you want me to pick you up? And she'd say eight o'clock. We'd be at dinner from 830 to 930. We'd go see a movie from 10 to 1130, 12 o'clock, then go get a drink afterwards. We wouldn't get home until two, <laughs> but it, it didn't phase us. Like, it's not like we were exhausted because she's a wolf and I'm a wolf. And so it's kind of interesting how sometimes partners find each other that are similar chronotypes. I love but it. Let's say, but let's say that you're different, right? And how do, how do you deal with the difference? Step one is education. Step two is looking at places where you can fudge a little bit. What you don't want to fudge on is your bedtime and your wake up time. So if you find that you are doing your best stuff and let's say you're a lion and you want to go to bed early and wake up early, but your partner wants to go to bed late and wake up late, then when your partner is asleep, that is the time that you can do certain activities that you normally would have reserved for doing while your partner was awake, Mm -hmm. right? So that could be extra work or hobbies or things like that. And so when you're both in the zone where you're both awake and alert, that's the time to plan special time for you and your partner or you and your partner with your children or things like that. So it kind of goes on a case by case basis. But the big thing you don't want to disrupt if you can help it is your sleep because your sleep really is the fundamental critical aspect of the whole program. And of course, we know sleep affects every organ system, every disease state. Sleep really affects almost every aspect of your life. Isn't that the truth? Well, then let's talk about some of the more popular supplements that people take who are having a difficult time falling asleep, which I've never had that problem. Sure. Uh, Knock on wood. But I have heard from many of the Shaleen Show listeners who asked me specifically, Dr. Bruce, to ask you about Mm -hmm. two things, melatonin and shoot, I just had a brain fade on the second one. Starts with them, I think. There's melatonin is the one that starts with them. Is it valerian? No, um... A supplement. Magnesium. Magnesium. Thank you. Yes. So those two supplements, my audience was curious your thoughts on those. So I'm going to tell you about both of them. So they both have their place, especially in the conversation that has to do with chronotypes. So part of the reason that you have a chronotype is because that's when your brain naturally produces melatonin. Mm. So for folks out there, melatonin is a hormone. It's not a vitamin. It's not a mineral. It's a hormone. And so you need to respect it and treat it like a hormone. You wouldn't walk down to your local health food store and say, hey, give me some testosterone or some estrogen, right? Right. Um, They're pretty, pretty big hormones, just like melatonin is. So also melatonin is not regulated by the FDA. So you uh, you can buy it over the counter. 
You can buy it over the so counter. You're buying and a any- hormone over the counter. Exactly. And wow. anybody could have made it in any surroundings. So you really want to check out who are the people that are making the good melatonin. Now, <laughs> I can tell you that I've actually looked at the purity standards of some melatonin out there. My personal rep, uh, pick would be a company called Natrol. Okay. Uh, they they do a tremendous job. They're actually owned by a pharmaceutical company. And so they use pharmaceutical grade standards in the production of their melatonin. Okay. So that's number one. Number two is the dosages. Um, The best dosage is somewhere between a half and one and a half milligrams. The problem is, is 90% of the melatonin that's sold out there is in three, five, 10 milligram dosages. So these are overdosages. Wow. So you don't need that much. Number three is melatonin takes 90 minutes to reach plasma concentration levels to be effective. So it's not a sleep initiator, it's a sleep regulator. So it could literally be taken in the morning? No, you would actually take it about an hour and a half before you want to go to sleep. Okay. So if your bedtime was 11, you'd be taking it around 930. Got it. All right. Um, and, and, but if mm-hmm. it is a hormone, how do I know yeah. if that's what I'm deficient in? And if because of that deficiency, it's causing mm-hmm. me to... Have the sleep problem. Yes. So, Shaleen, you've hit on the biggest nail in the bunch, mm-hmm. which is the fact that almost nobody is deficient in melatonin. Really? Correct. You, so, be, that's you just can, something we're passing around to each other because everyone yes. says, oh, maybe you need a melatonin supplement. That's right. And so here's the thing is, but I will tell you this, melatonin deficiency does come into play around age 50, Mm -hmm. 55, Mm -hmm. which is also the same time that your naturally chronotypes have a tendency to shift. There's a couple of reasons behind that. But at the end of the day, I do recommend melatonin supplementation for people who are in that 50 age range and up. Okay. Also, I recommend melatonin for jet lag. Um, where mm. you know your body is in one time zone, but your brain is stuck in another one. Okay. Remember, that's exactly what melatonin is designed to do, is to designed to rejigger your circadian system. Okay. Um, also, even on a Sunday night, because here's what happens, is you stay up late Friday, sleep in on Saturday, stay up late Saturday, sleep in on Sunday. Well, guess what? After doing that for just one or two nights, you've shifted your circadian rhythm pretty significantly to the point where- That quickly, uh, just in a couple yep. of days' time. Literally two days of more than a half an hour's time difference from your wake-up time, and you will have what we call social jet lag. Wow. And so Sunday night might not be such a bad night to try a melatonin supplement because your body is shifted, and that's the wow. thing that it actually works best on. What so about magnesium? Like magnesium. Well, hold on. I want to give one more comment about melatonin, if I please, may. Please, At very high dosages, almost nobody knows this, but melatonin is actually a contraceptive. Are you serious? I am serious. And so... So this could be causing infertility. It could be causing some problems, specifically in my young age group people. Okay. I never, ever, ever recommend melatonin for anybody under the age of 18. I can't count the number of parents who have come to me and said, my child can't sleep and my doctor told me to try melatonin. Oh my gosh. I can't think of anything worse for a young female reproductive system than adding a contraceptive. (sighs) Okay. Yeah. So I don't recommend it, but there is a caveat for for one particular type of child. Okay. There has been some fascinating research for children who are on the autism spectrum mm-hmm. that they actually do exceedingly well with higher dosages of melatonin, like in the four, five, ten milligram dosage range. 
Very so interesting. It's fascinating, and we don't know the exact mechanism of action as to why, but we do know that it does have a tendency to work in those children. We um, are all such unique machines. I mean, it's it, true. D- that is just the takeaway I ask my audience to be aware of is just because your friend suggests something, just because you've read it in, you know, in a news article or a, a story on Facebook, don't take it as fact. Every single one of us has a unique makeup and composition. And you've got to understand the machine. Agreed. Let's talk about magnesium. Please. Magnesium is awesome. I love it. I'm so relieved. I take it every night. Okay. Now, here's a couple of hints for people. Okay. So, number one, if you're going to take it in a pill form, Mm -hmm. then it's best to take it in conjunction with calcium because when those two enter the system, they work off of each other and help with absorption. Calcium in what? uh, And also a supplement form? Yeah. Yep. You can do it that way. Now, that's if you're taking it in a pill form that you swallow. If, however, you're taking it as a liquid or as a tincture that Mm -hmm. you would put under your tongue, Mm -hmm. you don't need the calcium because it's absorbed almost immediately into the bloodstream and starts to work right away. Is there a supplement company that you would recommend here? I have not. I have not found one that I that I just like stands out like Natrol mm-hmm. does for melatonin. Okay. I have not found a company yet that um, that I've really done uh, the due diligence to be able to make a recommendation. Okay. I However, that. I do have an interesting way to try to take some magnesium. Okay. So most people don't know this, but bananas are loaded with magnesium. Mm. It turns out that the peel of the banana has three times the amount of magnesium as the fruit itself. Okay. Hmm. You know what I'm going to ask you to do, right? I don't. I, but I'm already like going, ew, this is going to be gross. What do you think it's going to be? I think you're going to make me eat part of a peel. <laughs> no, not at all. I'm going to teach you and all of our listeners today how to make banana tea. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. So what you do is you take an organically grown banana, you wash it off to get off all the dirt, you cut off the stem and the tip, You cut it in half, leave the peel on and the fruit in it. Okay. You then put it into about three cups of boiling water and you boil it for about three or four minutes or until it turns brown. Okay. Then you drink the water. It's loaded with magnesium. If you like bananas, it's delicious. You can add a little cinnamon, a little honey to taste, and it's fantastic. I am doing this tonight. I love this tip. You're going to love it. And what do you call this tea? I call it Dr. Bruce's banana tea. Banana tea, banana sleep tea. Yep. This is fantastic. In terms of magnesium, what is the appropriate dosage if someone were to be... Um, Taking it in pill form? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're looking at probably somewhere between 250 and 300 milligrams. And do you think that everyone needs that or should they be, you know, figure it's, out for themselves if they're deficient? Yeah. Yeah. It's really surprising But the data would suggest that a large percentage of the U.S. population is deficient in magnesium because we don't eat enough dark uh, leafy vegetables, which Mm -hmm. is where we find a lot of our magnesium. And so I would tell you that almost anybody out there could use a little magnesium. Wow. One thing I've told my followers for so many years is that the best time to exercise Mm -hmm. is first thing in the morning. And I've said that not necessarily based on sleep or energy, but uh-huh. based on kind of the easiest time to exercise where there's going to be the least amount of interruptions. I personally, right. when taking your quiz, identified that the time that I have the highest amount of energy where right. I would want to do something very strenuous is kind of later morning, but I still work out first, like early morning before anyone wakes, because right. then I know I won't have interruption. But... 
interestingly enough, when I read your study <laughs> and I uh, or read the book, it made yep. me realize that when I've connected myself to, say, a Fitbit or a Jawbone to look at calorie right. expenditure, I can do the very same workout at, say, 6 a.m., and I don't burn nearly as many calories as when I do it at, say, 10 a.m. Isn't that amazing? It is. So tell us a little bit about, so if you, let's say the person who's listening has the luxury of being able to decide uh-huh. when they want to exercise. Right. What do you suggest that people should do? Stick to that early morning or when they feel the most energy? I would say, number one, go to my website and take the power of when mm-hmm. and figure out what your chronotype is. And then once you know your chronotype, you'll be able to figure out through the book what the best time is for exercise. But you've nailed it. And here's what's interesting is you can actually use exercise in different ways. So we know that you're a lion. You're an early morning person. Mm -hmm. Um, And you like to or you see you, you reported to me just now that you have the least amount of interruption going on in the early morning. However, if you're trying to burn fat, and you want to have the greatest caloric burn, you've also correctly identified that it happens to be a little bit later early in the morning hours because your body has to wake up, your metabolism has to get going, and you have to get that fire stoked and ready to burn those calories. If you wait too long, then you might not do it. Some of my lions, believe it or not, I have them exercise in the early evening when they find that they're just exhausted by eight o'clock and they can't stay up with their bed partners. Mm-hmm. They, if they exercise at around five thirty, six o'clock, it gives them an energy boost and helps carry them through the rest of the night, which is kind of an interesting way to utilize exercise. And by um, carry them, carries them through the rest of the night, meaning until it's an appropriate time to go to bed. Right. Okay, exactly. So exactly. can exercise also create some insomnia in folks? Uh, it can. But only if you exercise too close to what would be your bedtime. Some people get kind of revved up from exercise and feel more energetic from exercise, whereas others get a kind of a calmer sort of zen-like feeling. Um, If you know which one of those types of people you are, then you can kind of know when to do your exercise appropriately. There's also a third thing to keep in mind, and that's if you're training for a particular event like a race or you're on one of those Tough Mudder or Spartan things or Mm -hmm. you're an athlete or whatever. There's a lot of data to now show that if you train at the same times that you would compete, that you will actually compete better. Wow. That makes sense. It does make sense. It's a big thing for professional athletes now. Almost every professional athletic team has a sleep specialist that's either consulting or is part of the team. Well, one thing I wanted to point out to um, my audience is, you know, I've got so many people who are trying to carve off those last five or six pounds. And when you're talking about something even as maybe seemingly insignificant as burning, say, 100 additional calories in your workout just by shifting the hour at which you work out, that's really substantial. I mean, 100 calories times seven days a week times 52 weeks a year. I mean, it's a really big deal. So if you've got that ability to shift your hour of exercise to an hour where you've got the most energy, that can make a significant change in weight. And that's another issue that kept coming up repeatedly, Dr. Bruce, from my followers and the people who listen to The Shaleen Show, asking, is there something I can do with my sleep that will help me to lose weight now? So the biggest thing 
is to not be sleep deprived. Mm -hmm. Um, In my second book, The Sleep Doctor's Diet, Lose Weight Through Better Sleep, we talked about that relationship. And in our first show, we talked about that as well. So the key factor here is don't be sleep deprived. The second thing is there was a great study Mm -hmm. that I quote about in my new book, The Power of When, where we looked at timing of eating. And the okay. more consistent you are with your timing and the more you can keep your eating within certain time frames, yes. the easier it is to lose weight. So I'm going to tell you an example of a, a, a mouse study that was done that was fascinating. Mm-hmm. So they had three cages of mice and they gave them the exact same amount of food, same caloric intake. Okay. And one group could free eat. They could eat whenever they wanted. Another group, they only had exposure to the food during a 12-hour period. And then a third group only had exposure to the food in an eight-hour period. Mm -hmm. Same calories, same amount. The free-running group gained about 12%. Mm -hmm. The the group that ate in the 12-hour period, their weight maintained stability. And the group that ate within an eight-hour period lost about, I think it was 9 or 10%. Wow. So, now, and I read that study in your book, stuff. and the question that, so we're talking really about eating in a shorter window of yeah. time, also popular, popularly uh, known as intermittent fasting. Right. Um, so you're actually s- structuring the hours in which you consume the same amount of calories, but then consuming them in a shorter window, not grazing all day. How much of that relates to the hour at which you stop eating? Well, I think it has a lot to do with it because remember, when you stop eating, the more time that you have between when you stop eating and you go to sleep, mm-hmm. the more time your body has to to use up that fuel okay. and, and use up those resources. The closer to bedtime that you eat, the greater likelihood that that food is going to turn to fat because your body doesn't do a very good job from a metabolic standpoint while you're asleep because your heart rate goes down and everything kind of slows down. So you really want to have stopped eating if you possibly can, you know, probably close to four hours, you know, before bed. Wow. (sighs) So much easier said than done. And I wondered about that study when I read it, if they have done an extended period of time study. And have we done the same study on uh, humans? So I have not seen that study done in humans. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was, I think that was a 28 day study. So that was a month, roughly a month long study. So it would be great to see longitudinally what happens to those rodents over time. But my suspicion is, is that there is a window for food intake, um, especially if you're trying to lose weight. Mm -hmm. So we want to have our larger meals maybe earlier in the day, taper off as the day goes on and try to stop eating, try to go to bed with an empty stomach. Yeah, well, and you don't want to be hungry. You just don't want to be full either, right? Because if you go to bed hungry, you're never going to fall asleep because you're hungry. If you Um, think about how early that habit is instilled, though, I mean, it is truly ingrained in the care a mother provides to her child. Your child, just before they go to sleep, you know, when they're infants, you breastfeed them and then they go to sleep. Uh, Your child wakes up and even as they're toddlers, you feed them their lunch and then they take a nap. It's kind of this like conditioning that begins in infancy that when we eat, we then go to sleep, which is is not in our best interest in terms of body fat and hormone regulation, if, if I'm hearing you correctly. That is correct. You you heard me exactly correctly. <laughs> so for those of us who are listening who have children, understanding how many of these habits we can help 
with our own kids and helping them to have healthier habits that aren't just passed on because it's what our mothers did. But now, now we know better so we can do better. Right. Exactly. Wow. It's really fascinating how tied to our hormones our sleep is and how important our sleep is. You know, I've heard some interesting statistics, but I'm curious if you can tell me, I mean, could you die from being sleep deprived? So you can, but it's inadvertent. You would die by falling asleep while driving your car, Mm. right? Or something like that. You can't actually die from sleep deprivation, but you can get so exhausted that you just, you know, pass out. You know, when you talk to, you know, people who have been in um, terrible situations where they've been tortured, they all say the same thing. They say it wasn't the pain from the torture that was so terrible. It was the sleep deprivation. Wow. Yeah. Um, They all say the same thing. It's amazing. Wow. So many of my listeners wrote in to say, like, I could get great sleep if my partner didn't snore. What do you what advice do you have for those partners or those who are suffering from sleep apnea? What suggestions do you have? So, first of all, it's very interesting. The data is very consistent. If you sleep next to a snoring bed partner, you lose approximately one hour of sleep a night. Okay. And in that hour, so that means we are losing at least one cycle of REM. That's correct. Exactly. How about the person who's snoring? How much sleep are they losing? So, it turns out that snoring does, in fact, affect the depth of your sleep. And more importantly, it can be an early sign of sleep apnea. And for folks out there who may not know, sleep apnea is a situation where it's like snoring, but a little bit worse in that you might snore, but also your throat closes Mm -hmm. and you stop breathing in your sleep. This can lead to all kinds of very difficult cardiovascular complications, weight gain, morning headaches, things of this nature. This is a serious disorder, a serious disease that has to be treated fairly quickly. And so if you or your bed partner have ever noticed that a person is stopping breathing in their sleep or they're waking up exhausted, snoring, if they have a combination of any one of those symptoms, it's probably time to talk with your doctor about getting a sleep test. And for those who are wondering if they are suffering from uh, sleep apnea, are there some pretty clear indicators? Yeah. So the biggest one of the biggest indicator is no matter how much sleep you get, you wake up exhausted. Mm. Uh, That's number one. Number two is uh, a bed partner noticing that you stop breathing. Uh, Number three is you actually wake up choking or gasping for air. If you have any one of those three, there's a fairly decent likelihood you have sleep apnea. But here's one that's even crazier. If you have over a 17 and a half inch neck, you have over an 80% chance of having sleep apnea. 80% chance if your neck circumference is greater than 17 and a half? That's correct. Men and women. Men and women. Wow. So that should probably be a warning label on yeah. uh, I, sure. I tell people all the time I should just stand next to the big and tall store for men and hand out my card. Wow. That's <laughs> no joke. What things could they expect to, other than daytime sleepiness that would give them some indication that they're not getting proper sure. REM? Like maybe so, they don't snore, but they just like, you know, mm-hmm. many of the people who yep. left questions for you said, I'm getting seven, eight hours of sleep, but I am always tired. Right. So that's number one. If somebody says they're getting the proper amount of sleep and they feel exhausted, there's a reason. That means that they're not getting the quantity of sleep is good, but the quality of their sleep is not good. That's pretty telling right there. 
if you're not getting enough REM sleep, you also have a tendency to have memory issues. Mm -hmm. So you walk into Mm -hmm. a room and forget while you're there. You Mm -hmm. lose your keys a lot. You're at the store. You can't remember items on your list, things like that. Um, Also, people who wake up in the morning with headaches, that's a sign of oxygen deprivation from stopping breathing in your sleep. Mm -hmm. That can be a big one. Also, people who report that their pain is worse in the mornings. Um, have a tendency to have sleep apnea as well. People who have a tendency to go to the bathroom multiple times a night, people who have a lowered libido, all of these are external signs and symptoms of sleep apnea. Wow, these are amazing. I've got so many questions. I feel like we should probably go into rapid fire if you're great on the fly. I'm ready for it. Fire away. Okay. This person asked, what about a season? Like, for example, I'm in college and I'm there are certain days of the week where I just can't get enough sleep because I'm cramming for exams. Am I doing permanent damage? So the good news is, is you're not doing permanent damage unless you're talking about your GPA. Ah. The, um, <laughs> there's a lot of data to show that pulling an all nighter is actually not good for doing something like that. Uh, the great, your ability to remember things, your ability to understand and complete concepts mm. is always affected. So I would tell people better that you sleep for two 90 minute cycles for three hours and then get up because you will have gotten enough sleep to kind of lower that exhaustion level and be able to study again and then go ahead and take a nap. But try as best you can to stick to one sleep schedule because that's going to make it difficult. Excellent. Next question, Chevy Chic 50 asks, if I'm waking up every night in the middle of the night and staying up for a couple of hours, what does this mean? So that's a type of insomnia called um, sleep maintenance insomnia. And now I'm not giving anybody a diagnosis over podcast here, right. but that is something that you might want to speak with the doctor about. It could have to do with your sleep schedule. It could have to do with stress. It could have to do with blood sugar. There's a couple of different things. So it's probably worth a trip to the doctor to talk about. Mm, great. Okay. Next person asks, uh, what if I just can't fall asleep at night? I lay there for hours with things ruminating in my head and I so desperately want to fall asleep, but I can't. So this is my area of specialty. Uh, this is what I do my most work on. And I would tell you a large percentage of my patients come to me having already tried sleeping pills and we try to get them off those sleeping pills. There's now data to suggest that cognitive behavioral therapy for Mm. insomnia works better than things like Ambien and Lunesta and some of the medications out there. So trying to find somebody who can help you with that is important. There's actually a website and it's called sleepcenterswithans.org. And if you go on there, there's a map and you click on your state and it tells you about all the board certified sleep specialists in your state. Mm, that's great. I'm glad you just mentioned um, some of those sleep supplements or sleep sleeping aids, I guess we could say, because the next question asks, what if I need to take Advil PM or something similar or have a glass of wine to fall asleep? Is this dangerous? So if you need something every single night to go to sleep, then it's probably time to talk with somebody. Mm. If you have occasional pain and you take an Advil PM, I don't have a problem with that. I also, by the way, don't have a problem with you drinking wine. I mean, there's a lot of data to show that red wine can be actually very beneficial to your heart. But if you need wine to sleep, that's a big difference because, you know, there's a big difference between going to sleep and passing out. And right? I think I'd remembered it. Maybe it was in your book that you or one of the interviews I've listened to where you'd said it, it's the timing. It's it's the when yes. you're drinking the wine. It is. And so one of the things we know is that there's a reason they call it happy hour. And that's because when you drink between five and seven in the afternoon, depending upon your chronotype, 
it will give you energy as opposed to making you feel sleepy. One glass of wine at night before bed is not going to kill anybody, but two or three glasses of wine is definitely moving in the wrong direction. Mm, Great. Adrian asks, how do I know if I'm actually getting good sleep, even if I'm, you know, sleeping the right amount of hours? How do I know if I'm actually getting good sleep? Well, if you wake up in the morning and you feel good, then the chances are that you probably are getting good sleep. While that's easy to say, it's not always easy to metric. That's one of the biggest problems that we have in general is that there's no great number for sleep. You know, people come like you can get on a scale and you can figure out, you know, your weight. You can do all these types of things and get numbers to count your number of steps, count your number of calories. But what you can't do is get a good idea of how you sleep. And so a lot of times people are using Fitbits or trackers or Mm -hmm. things like that. I would tell you that my favorite one out of all of them is uh, something called the S plus, the, just the letter S with the plus sign. Okay. Um, that's the one that I use. And who's that made by? Uh, it's made by a company called ResMed. They have a 25-year history of working with people with sleep disorders. They actually make um, the, – they're the largest manufacturers of CPAP machines in the world. And um, they have a long, long history – a good history of uh, teaching people how to sleep better. So that's the one that I use with my patients. And it can give you some great information. And then you can get some ideas as things you should do next. Mm. Okay. And this is a, a really common one is what about all the new moms? Is it just a season and, and just to expect it? There, Because a lot of them have said, you know, the advice out there is to take naps whenever you can. But when you're a new mom, it's just not going to happen. Yeah, so I would disagree with take naps whenever you can. If mm. you have insomnia, you should not be napping. Mm. Right? That is not good because there's data to show that the last time that you were asleep directly affects your ability to fall asleep. Uh-huh. And so a lot of times I'm telling people stay away from napping if you can. Now, if you are an executive or a new mom or something like that and your sleep has been restricted not by your own doing but by some other factor like a baby then get sleep when you can because otherwise you're just going to be exhausted and try as best you can to keep some form of a regular schedule but it's tough yes it's so true and great advice oh gosh i mean there's i could i could keep you on for another hour with these uh, people are so curious about their sleep. Let me just quickly see what are because there's so many. I want to pick the very most common next question. Well, you know, in podcast number three that we'll do together. <laughs> I love it. Okay, let me ask you this because okay. it seems to be a very common one, and that is if I'm sleep deprived because I've had to pull an all nighter for work or college, how long can I expect to get back to normal? And like, how, how can I catch back up in other words? So it's hard. I would tell you that generally speaking, it's very difficult to, um, to catch up on a lot of sleep. Mm. That being said, um, I think one of the things that we need to do is to get people to, um, keep that consistent sleep schedule. But if you've missed out on some sleep, you can sleep in for about 25, 30 minutes in the morning. But if you go past that, your whole circadian rhythm starts to shift. Ah. Uh, You can take a power nap during the day for about 25 minutes, but your body will make up for it. You can go to bed maybe 
a half an hour earlier. But again, by putting too big a shift in, it's going to be a problem for a lot of people. So would it be your advice then if I, for whatever reason, there was a night I didn't get any sleep, would it just be your advice that the next night just return to your regular schedule and and you can expect to return to a, a more regulated circadian rhythm after a night or is it take well, a period it of time? So your body will naturally shift approximately one hour uh, or one time zone per night. Mm. And so as an example, if I fly from Los Angeles to New York in roughly two and a half days, I'll be on New York time. And the same goes for vice versa. So when the more sleep deprived you are, again, you just have to be very, very careful and try to keep that consistent bedtime. And the easiest thing to do is to screw it up on the weekends. So I'm here to tell everybody, do not sleep in on the weekends if you can possibly help it. Wow. For those who are interested in, you know, we we gave them some rapid fire answers, but I'm sure that there's such a wealth of information and exceptions to to every rule. Where can they learn more about your your work and um, the books that you offer? So people can find me at uh, one of two websites. My primary website is thesleepdoctor.com. And if you want to learn more about my newest book, The Power of When, and, and learn the perfect time to have sex, eat a cheeseburger, run a mile, you name it, you can go to thepowerofwhen.com or thepowerofwhenquiz.com. Well, I'm going to challenge my audience to go and take the quiz and leave a response for me on what chronotype you discovered you were under my last post on Instagram. Dr. Bruce, you are the man. And I love that you say dude. Uh, All the time. Dude. So thank you so much for enlightening my audience and helping us to get better sleep because it really has so much to do with our overall health and well-being and getting along with our spouse and like pretty much everything. Absolutely. Take care. And everybody, be sure to check out the quiz. I want to hear your results. Dr. Bruce, thanks again for being on the show. Hey, wishing everybody out there some sweet dreams. This episode has been brought to you by the Smart Life Push Journal. You can learn more by going to smartlifepushjournal.com. If you're the type of individual who loves to make lists, keep yourself on task, get organized, and there just don't seem to be enough hours in the day. If you love journals, but you haven't found one that's simple and easy and allows you to take it with you without it being hugely cumbersome or weighing 10 pounds, this is a convenient, lightweight, simple to use 30-day system. This is not just a day planner. Hi, my name is Erica Amadori, and I am on day 23 of my first journal, and I'm totally loving it. In the past, I have always been a planner. I've been more of a monthly planner kind of girl. And just like you said, it was almost like you were in my head. They were so big and clunky. And then I also tried using an electronic calendar since my husband owns his own business and he's had success with a Google calendar. We were able to share calendars. And while it was great, I also didn't have the mind to hand connection. I think that didn't resonate the same as with writing it down. So your Smart Life Push Journal really has been that missing link that I was needing between a monthly planner and a Google online electronic calendar. Thank you so much for creating this journal. It really has been awesome. And it's been so cool to see all of the goals we've already been crushing individually and as a family. Thank you, Shaleen, for everything. Can't thank you enough. So check it out. Go to smartlifepushjournal.com and learn how you can get your health, fitness, life, and goals 
organized, and develop the laser focus you need to have the life that you deserve. Check it out. Go to smartlifepushjournal.com.